what we're doing is to create the conditions ecological and sociological for the return of these two large predators that are present they have been on and off coming back but we need to find the conditions for them to settle and to grow Welcome to another episode of Rewilding the World with me, Ben Goldsmith. And today I'm very lucky to be talking to my friend Pedro Prata, who is leading efforts by rewilding Portugal to restore natural vibrancy to great swathes of that country. And Pedro has big ambitions. Pedro, wh where did you spend your childhood and, and how much time did you spend as a childhood immersing yourself in nature, looking for wildlife and so on? So I, I grew up uh, in the central mountains of Portugal, the Serra da Estrela mountains. The closest and biggest town is Guarda, but I lived off uh, from the city in a small uh, family farm. And I was always surrounded and immersed in, in nature. I love the outdoors. Uh, I love biking and hiking and uh, kayaking and fishing and so on. So all my free time as a kid besides school I would spend outdoors doing something and um, I had a great passion for birds fish mammals everything I would track and I would find their nests and I would find them in the in the wild and just observe them it was a great pleasure while growing up so uh, the seed was there and and that what led me to biology uh, to study I only left the, the the central mountain region for that to to go to Lisbon to to be trained as a biologist when I was 18 so I grew up immersed in, in nature I, I don't know Portugal well I, I, vi I visited the coast as a child staying with a friend of mine who, whose parents had apartment in Sintra and more recently I came to visit you in in the northern part of Portugal along the Douro one impression I got is that a lot of the landscape seems to have been converted into commercial tree plantations non-native species eucalyptus it seems to me radiata pine and so on and i was quite staggered for a small country by the scale of that landscape transformation that's taken place is that true of the whole of portugal and and you know what's your opinion of that when did that happen how yeah, it's true. If you first visit Portugal, you travel from Porto to, to Lisbon, and it's like this three-hour-long drive, and you basically drive alongside the uh, eucalyptus plantation all the way. It's, it's, it's staggering. It's shocking, honestly. But I do see the, 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 the history, uh, how, how we came to be like this, and it all has to be with political decisions. So back 150 years ago, the Portuguese state had a policy to, to develop the forestry sector by using eucalyptus, and it started like that. And of course, all the Atlantic front, which is more um, rainy, where there's better conditions, uh, it all got transformed from former uh, pastoral lands and uh, small holding uh, farming into big expansions of uh, eucalyptus plantation. Not the whole country is like that. Uh, Portugal is quite diverse in, uh, in, in climate and biomes. This north-western uh, uh, front is dedicated and, and mostly uh, covered by eucalyptus. But you think about the south, you still have large expenses of Montado, which is the the, the cork and oak uh, open woodland that is still used as, as pastoral land. And then the, the, the back country, so this area that we're in, this stretch of land along the border with Spain, is much more dry. And therefore, the, the condition for, for tree plantations is not so good, not, neither for uh, eucalyptus, neither for pine. But 
until the late 70s, early 80s, pine was the dominant plantation that covered most of the, the forest uh, area of the country. And because of the, the, the use of pine mostly for construction, that at the time with new techniques of construction and so on, it it lost his value as a as a resource for that. So when that happened, there was a big transformation in the plantations and eucalyptus actually got the upper hand and now is the dominant uh, tree cover in Portugal, uh, which means that uh, a lot of the country is now a degraded landscape of uh, monospecific uh, exotic plantation of eucalyptus. And of course, eucalyptus, which comes from Australia, it's, it's not native, it's incredibly effective at sucking water out of the land and also uh, creates conditions in which other plants cannot thrive. So it's, it's, it's a really dominant invasive and, and creates a, a dried out, denuded landscape. And after two or three crops of eucalyptus, I understand it's, it's very difficult for the ecosystem to recover. Eucalyptus also creates an extraordinary fire risk. Um, the, a lot of us were, were horrified to read the stories last summer and the previous summer of, of the fires that swept Portugal and the people burned alive in their cars as they drove through eucalyptus plantations and pine plantations, which make those fires so much more intense. But is the eucalyptus profitable? Is there an economic impetus to continue with that kind of eucalyptus production? Or is there an opportunity now to change the economic model? As, 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 as we may discuss later with, with sheep farming in the British uplands, which is hopelessly uneconomic, and therefore the farmers in those landscapes are now being incentivized to switch to the kind of farming which brings about the restoration of nature. Could a similar economic transition take place in the eucalyptus lands of northern Portugal? Yeah, as you say, it's only uh, profitable if you don't account for the externalities of the of the business. So eucalyptus, as you say, is a big risk. If, if these plantations pose to society as a whole a huge risk. It's not just about the degradation of soil, sucking up of the water, but actually the the the, the risk of fire. It's immense, and this is not accounted in their in the business uh, in the business model. It's not accounted to cover for those risks as for the society. So they are not contributing as an industry to society. We're actually paying for the risk of having huge swaths of land covered by these uh, plantations. That in case of fire, as it happened in 2017, when more than a hundred people died in forest fires because because of the of the conditions that were uh, now becoming more and more frequent due to climate change drier longer periods of uh, summer with a uh, strong winds and low humidity just create perfect conditions for for fire to to thrive if this is uh, burning in a, a oil rich species such as eucalyptus it's like a it's 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 horrible and that's what what happened in 2017 it was unstoppable uncontrollable it lasted for weeks in a row and it went through a huge expanse of of, of land crossing towns crossing highways crossing dams it crossed dams so imagine how strong a fire must be to cross a dam and this is not accounted in the business model so no one paid none of the industry have paid for those risks and all those consequences so if you think about that the the margin of profit for the industry is, is actually very uh, small to the producers uh, so the, the the people who are actually producing eucalyptus to feed the industry are gaining very little um, they have these short cycle of uh, production every 10 years there's a cut and after uh, three cuts so after 30 years the 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 whole uh, plantation uh, ground has to be renewed so they have to 
till it up to a meter deep so completely destroying the the soil structure to allow for new plantations and each plantation is is then uh, less productive so it's a short-term thinking without accounting for the risk that is making this business thrive but there is the 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 pulp industry production that needs the, the raw material to keep going and that's the main drive so if you look at it from an economic perspective it doesn't make sense on the long term only on the short term if you're a small older if you want to make some bucks of course eucalyptus is the easiest but on the long term you're destroying the soil you're putting your society to risk and in the in the long term not even the industry is going to gain from that and that's one of actually the challenges for the for the pulp industry in portugal is to think about what are they going to do in 30 40 50 years considering that the the raw material will be less uh, uh productive considering that uh, importation will be more expensive and considering that uh, climate change is going to affect the production chain and therefore uh, uh, the conditions for having the cheap raw material that that fed this industry for a long time is no longer available. So uh, all considered, I would say that this needs to change, not just from a ecological uh, point of view, but also from an economic point of view. But there needs to have a political decision towards that. And it seems like Portugal politician sector uh, has been for decades or centuries now uh, hostage to the industry it feels like there's a state within the state with uh, the pulp industry and the eucalyptus production chain in the country no one wants wants to to question uh, this or dares to change it uh, at this moment and every single voice out there such as me who's always pointing out to these aspects of how dangerous and how blind it is to follow this kind of trajectory uh, we always feel like the outsider here talking about rubbish because Everybody knows that this is a very important economic factor for the country, which is not, but uh, everybody is supporting it. Pedro, you're, you're spending most of your time focused on a particular mega landscape, which is the Greater Coa Valley on the, on the border with Spain. It's, it's on my bucket list, a place I really long to come and spend time and, uh, and to explore with you. Can you tell us a little bit about that biome and what's happening there? What kind of restoration you're doing there? Yeah, the Greater Cua Valley is quite interesting. It's this stretch of land that uh, runs along the, the Spanish border between Portugal and Spain, on the Portuguese side, of course. And it stretches from the central mountain range. So there's to the south this mountain, the Malcata, uh, where the river Coa starts. And it runs north uh, all the way up to the Douro uh, River. So um, the Greater Coa Valley, as we define it, is the, the catchment area for the, the Coa River and its tributaries. It covers 318,000 hectares, uh, and within this, its core, basically where the river runs and most of its tributaries, it has a high level of abandonment of the land and, and passive rewilding of that land um, that has become a wildlife corridor. So what we're doing here is to reinforce this corridor uh, to make it thrive, so the so diminishing the, the, the obstacles and... Um, allowing it to be more abundant in wildlife. And we're doing that by several uh, means. And um, what we envision here is to have this large landscape that actually connect multiple important nature areas, both to the south, north, 
east and west um, that allow for processes, wildlife and species to come back and thrive uh, in the long run. So we have like a project at and now with a with a, a medium term vision about 10 to 15 year vision where we know where we're going to do where the threats are where we need to act but we have like a a, a wish for a desire of a vision towards a longer term a, a century long vision for this landscape and uh, that's what we're working on and and what's the scale of this can can you give me a sense of of the scale of the area that you're working in directly and also the scale of the connectivity that that you envisage yeah so as i said the the, the coa valley is a uh, 318000 hectares big as a catchment of the of the river its core where most of the 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 rewilding is happening is a core area that runs along the river in tributaries is 120000 hectares uh, long big corridor it stretches for about 150 kilometers north to south and has a width um, of about 25 to 30 kilometers with the within the core area so it's quite big what we aim for the connectivity is to allow the species that uh, use these uh, corridors uh, to move from a natural area to natural area actually to connect multiple of these natural areas within the corridor and this include a lot of the land mammals such as the wolf uh, the lynx that uh, was uh, present and hadn't come back but is sometimes dispersing and coming through here of course the return of the inhabitants of the forest such as deer roe deer ibex one day and the ones that we can bring back because they have been absent for millennia such as the wild horse and the and the replacement for the auroch what we're using now the taurus so we're using those in specific islands along this corridor so our strategy is to buy small uh, patches of land along this uh, corridor to create a stepping stone approach where we have this string of smaller areas where we're now introducing the animals in order for the medium turn allow them to spill off from these areas and actually use the the, the corridor as a whole uh, we're now um, uh, managing and uh, acting on four of these uh, uh, small areas that all combined are a little bit more than 2,000 hectares, uh, almost 3,000 at the moment. And we aim to have another two or three in a string uh, where we can act. But the idea is that these are seeding. This is our, we're stepping in, putting the processes to run, and then let them spill out and actually use the corridor as they should, as they should be using this corridor because that uh, what it feels like uh, natural for this landscape. And that's what we're trying to improve. And in the process of reintroducing animals, do you have to engineer the land in any way? For example, removing fences, uh, removing uh, non-native plant species such as eucalyptus, uh, renaturalizing watercourses. How, how much physical work do you need to do in these places before you get on with species reintroduction? Yeah. So whenever we buy a piece of land, and uh, usually we have to combine several uh, different uh, pieces together to to form a significant uh, piece that we can work in and we can introduce like horses, taurus, other species. Um, the first thing we do is uh, defencing. Honestly, there's so much fencing going on uh, everywhere. These are lost fences abandoned fences obsolete fences that uh, were used for some some time but that's too hard to 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 take them out so 
people just leave them. So a, a lot of it has to do with defensing in the first uh, approach. Then sometimes there's encroachment because the land hasn't been grazed at all by any herbivore for a long time. So there's encroachment and, and we need to break that encroachment a little bit before we uh, introduce the, the, the large grazers. Then we leave that job to them. But by, by encroachment, what you mean is encroachment by native species that are naturally recolonizing the land. Yes. So, well, it's, it's of course native species. It's mostly dominated by broom, the the several species of broom, which are fire pioneers. So you have to you have to look at this landscape as as a, a result of decades of very frequent fires. And what happens? What after a fire is that the pioneer species uh, get a hold and get the upper hand and they are the first to colonize. Usually broom species, uh, which are more dominant here, uh, after three, four, five years after a fire, completely cover the ground. They're very thick. And uh, of course, it's a stepping, it's, it's just a stepping in succession, but uh, that would allow for, for trees to, to grow under the, the broom and then actually take uh, the, the upper hand above the, the, the broom. But what happened is that the frequency of fire doesn't allow it. So if you have a frequency that is below 10 years, uh, every 10 years there's a fire, every five years there's a fire. There's even a case where we bought the land where the average uh, frequency of fire ha- was calculated uh, in the last 20 years to be 2.7 years. So every three uh, years there was a fire, which means that after a long run of this uh, frequency, what we have is the dominance of just broom. Basically, the seed bank for trees is depleted. Every other species that doesn't uh, do well uh, after fire is gone. Long uh, or species that take longer to grow and to to thrive didn't have a chance. So that means that it all covered by broom. So what we do is break that. So open clearances, open areas where the 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 grasses can start to cover it to allow for the succession to take place and actually to create this discontinuity, this mosaic uh, it's in the landscape that then is kept by the, the large grazers. It's just a, 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 a kickstart action that we uh, do to allow for the grazers to be more effective uh, right from the be- from the beginning. Um, that's one thing. Uh, then you talk about um, water. That's the second thing. Uh, a lot of the, the land is now drained. We're missing the, the beaver uh, as an engineer for that uh, storing of water in the landscape. And uh, a lot of the, the natural springs, natural ponds, temporary ponds were transformed for some reason, usually to have uh, watering holes for, for livestock. So these watering holes are completely uh, destroyed in terms of ecological uh, benefits they could bring. So restoring uh, some of these water points allow them to have this seasonality of uh, being dry part of, uh, of the year during summer and then filling up during the rainy season. This variety of uh, uh, niches at ecological is quite important. So uh, restoring water sources is also part of our uh, work. And these are the main actions that we do kickstarting. So defensing, breaking the dominance of broom and restoring water points. That's mainly what we do. Then get the grazers in place and let them lead that transformation. And that's what we've been doing every time we buy a piece of land. We're now stepping stone, doing one after the other to have these multiple areas in the the corridor that later on we will try to uh, open up the last remaining fences to for them to spill over 
I, I read recently an article in in the Portuguese press suggesting that beavers may be recolonizing the Duro catchment. Um, they, they, of course, were were released onto the Ebro 20 years ago and um, have made their way to the upper reaches of the Ebro, which is not far from the upper reaches of the Duro in northern Spain. How long do you think it is until the beavers make it back into your landscape? Because obviously that will be a, a vital missing part of the ecosystem back in place. Yeah, it's... Uh I think we'll be surprised. Honestly, we'll be surprised how fast they will arrive to 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 the Coa Valley. So what happened was that so there was the population in the Ebro uh, 20 years ago, as you said, and recently, as last year, there was uh, uh, findings that they actually uh, crossed uh, to the to the Doro catchment. So they basically uh, climbed the ridge between the two catchments and and uh, colonized the upper Doro region uh, uh, in Spain. Then a few months later, from that news, uh, there was a second news where there was findings of the of beaver lower downstream from the Douro, actually not too far from the border with, with Portugal. So where the Douro runs from Spain into Portugal, there's a few tributaries and one of which there's evidence of, um, of uh, beavers. Uh, and, and this is very close. We're talking about a few hundred meters from the border. There is other evidence because the, the monitoring followed on that there are other uh, pocket populations in the same uh, region, either uh, on the Portuguese or the Spanish side. So it's we don't have yet the, the, the proof, but there's evidence that there might be very close by. And this is a few dozen kilometers away uh, if you follow the river downstream to the Kua. So that means that on a natural expansion rate, we'll be looking to have the, the beaver back into the Kua catchment in um, five, ten years, let's say. Uh, we might be surprised to be faster. Theoretically, if those beavers were not present in your part of the Iberian Peninsula, do you think it would be possible to persuade the Portuguese government to give you a license to reintroduce beavers or would the bureaucracy and and the entrenchment of, of special vested interests be, be too much? Well, we've been trying to persuade government and, of course, the authority, the institution that is uh, responsible for these processes to, to reintroduce not just beaver, but other species. And the resistance has been, at this point, impossible to surpass. But I think there will be a change in attitude because uh, we've been showing proof that we're capable of uh, leading large restoration efforts. Uh, we have been reintroducing uh, domestic species and allow them to be uh, wild. We're actually pressing to actually change the status of these animals towards a wild uh, species. And in the future, as the evidence mounts that uh, we need to take action to allow for uh, biodiversity to thrive, and some species such as the beaver are uh, such a clear missing link in this uh, ecosystem restoration that... Um, our pressure, our time, and the condition will at some point be uh, possible to, to have a license to at least bring back the beaver. Pedro, I saw some amazing videos, um, not, not just the ones you sent me, but, but on, on social media all over the place, of the release of some tauros, which are, of course, the, 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 the kind of modern-day equivalent of the ancient wild cattle, the oryx, and also some, I think, Soraya horses, um, how many and what's the plan? When did, when did you release each of these species? How many of them and, and, and what next? 
So um, we've been re releasing uh, different herds. Uh, we started with the Soraya horse, uh, which is a old uh, Portuguese breed of a related uh, horse to what was the the wild horse. Actually, the the Soraya was um, caught as a, a feral species back in the century ago and was uh, created as a, as a domestic breed, but basically has a lot of traits of what was a, a, a wild horse. And we bought a few herds. Uh, two years ago, we, we released the first herd. And now every year, uh, by the end of April, we've been releasing new herds. It coincidentally happens to be end of April, 1st of May. Usually we release uh, herds. So we have at the moment, so there was two years of release of um, Soraya horses. And then last year or this year, uh, we released the, um, the Taurus for the first time. So we're looking for every year to release new new herds, increasing their numbers, creating new herds, allowing them to grow. At the moment, we have um, 16, 17 Taurus. We brought 15 and two were born here. And we have about 25 or 26. It depends because they keep uh, uh, growing the herd. The new new foals are born now uh, recently. So there are about 25, 26 uh, Soraya horses and in three, four different herds. And we keep increasing them. So the idea is to create the conditions for these herds to grow and to actually become uh, more wild to to display more behavioral wild behaviors and wild uh, traits um we're having now in contained areas so basically they're all within large uh, fenced areas but we've seen very interesting behaviors besides that and they do have a, a, a moving pattern that is very wild they don't they don't stop they just keep uh, exploring their landscape they actually found a way out of the fence and they moved out they crossed the river and uh, they just moved out and start to explore and it was interesting to see that they weren't noticed because they really act as wild animals they they're they are cryptic they don't uh, run into trouble. They are doing their business, but they want to explore. They never stop. So like as uh, displaying that, that behavior of uh, the fear ecology that is in, in the textbook. So even though there is the presence of wolf here is not a really a significant present, but the, the Taurus have displayed that behavior of defense, of not stopping short term uh, feeding and drinking and moving on. In Spain, there's been some brilliant work by Fernando Moran and others to show the increased fire resilience of landscapes which have bison present. And I think it's so important that the Portuguese government begins to understand how these large herbivores not only breathe life back into landscapes by creating these dynamic mosaic ecosystems, but which create landscapes also which are more fire resistant. And that brings us to the subject of large carnivores. Um, you know, how, how optimistic are you that wolf numbers will recover in your part of Portugal? Of course, there were none until quite recently, but wolves are recovering in, in the northern part of the Iberian Peninsula. And also bears. I mean, the, the bear numbers are pretty exciting in, in the Cantabrian mountains and, and f further up to the east and the north in the Pyrenees. Can we expect to see a natural recolonization on your side of the Douro by bears and wolves? Well, the, the wolf was never gone. Uh, their numbers are very low. Uh, south of the Douro is this pocket population that is de disconnected from the main population north of the Douro. They suffer from that uh, lack of connectivity, not just 
because they they don't get new animals, but also because their gene pool is quite contained. So the the, the problem in in genetics is is important for this population, and um, of course they would they would benefit from having uh, input from the re the remaining population north of the Douro. But besides that, the numbers nowadays are still quite low. I believe they they will grow. Uh, because we're looking to promote the conditions that will allow for for it. So we've been working on the wolf population south of the Douro, trying to uh, diminish the barriers, either ecological and socio sociological barriers for the connectivity of this uh, population. And uh, we have witnessing some improve, namely on the on prevention of uh, damage from from their attacks, and uh, and we're looking to improve even more the conditions for their um, prey bases, so the 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 habitat conditions for for having larger packs and packs that actually breathe. So this is the the strategy that we're following, but it's a long term strategy. You can you can't see results straight away. It takes time, uh, especially with this this carnivores. As for the other top predators, uh, the lynx has been uh, dispersing, so it has been released mostly uh, in the south of the uh, of the peninsula. But naturally, it has been dispersing northwards. Uh, also, because the conditions, as climate change changes, the habitats in the south are becoming more favorable uh, in the north. Actually, the koa was the last remnant wild population of uh, lynx before it got extinct back in the in the nineties. So uh, what we're doing now, and we will be start do, uh, actively working quite uh, a lot on that, is to create the conditions again ecological and sociological for the return of these two large predators that are present. They have been uh, on and off coming back, but we need to find the conditions for them to settle and to grow. And that's what we're looking to do. As for the, for the bear, it takes longer to expand. That's it. I'm positive that they will come back. I mean, again, the Kua was a... Uh, um, pair hunting route for the nobility up to the 16th century. So that means that the, there were a population of a, a bear in the region at least uh, 500 years ago in this region. And um, as for the connectivity, if you think about an expansion southward from the Cantabrian Mountains, uh, they already crossed the border uh, at least a couple of times that they were noticed uh, to Portugal in the Montezinho area. But if you think about it, the connectivity from that area downwards, the immediate uh, connectivity uh, across the Douro is the, the Coa River. So uh, it just takes time. Uh, it needs to be uh, created some conditions in terms of uh, ecology, but also on the sociology of acceptance of these large predators. But I'm sure it's a matter of time uh, these predators come back to their natural grounds, which were the Koa till very recently. L large carnivores are probably more controversial than, than beavers or, or large herbivores, al although you'd be surprised if you came to Britain how more or less anything more charismatic than a, than a hedgehog can actually be quite surprisingly controversial. Um, I'd love to know a little bit about the conflicts and the difficulties that you face in your area from a cultural perspective. You know, how, how do the local communities view your activities and, and how do you get along with this work in, in that context? Yeah, of course, uh, like 
predators and especially the wolf in this region has been, uh, of course, polemic. But uh, I, I would say that the main reason is not that people aren't uh, used to have wolves because wolves have always been present somehow and uh, in certain numbers, and uh, and there were uh, methods to deal with it. The, the The main reason why I think nowadays um, there was a lot of controversy uh, in the region about about wolves is not about the, the the impact that they do they have in 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 livestock, but the way this is responded by authorities. So nowadays, the, the process to have compensation of, uh, of an attack is so bureaucratic, it's so complex that most people don't do it. They rather uh, uptake the, the loss than, than go through all that process and maybe get paid very late and very little for their li uh, lost livestock. And because of that, the direct persecution rose. So if people don't get their problem solved, they will solve them, them themselves. And that has created a lot of problem for the population of wolf to the south of the Douro because there been the use of, uh, of um, poison and direct persecution even including the the, the use of fire to drive the, uh, the packs out of their ranges and so this creates a lot of disturbance that has been creating destructured uh, packs that then later create more trouble because they need to find food and they will obviously go for the easiest and sometimes the easiest is just a, is a cheap in the sheep next door and i think if we have a a good proper program and, and solution for this kind of event then the the conflict uh, will will diminish to a minimum and um, and that is something that we've been pressing uh, the state a lot about because the solution is there is to compensate the people directly face them look them in the eyes and find solutions together we're doing that but we're just a small ngo if the if the state actually takes that uh, responsibility then the, the the problem can be solved pedro how do local communities view your work more generally you know the idea of rewilding this landscape creating corridors and bringing back wildlife so Nowadays, I would say that uh, generally is very supportive. Of course, when you start working with wolf and large grazers, large predators, and talking about rewilding large uh, landscapes, uh, the, there is there is some resistance. But being present, being working in the area, being from the region, uh, staying here, having a vision, and actually deliver solutions, working with the communities, working with the economic fabric of the region, improving the knowledge about this region, and actually exporting uh, the benefits of having such a beautiful wild landscape worldwide, have brought the attention and brought the, the, the people to come and visit, that brought uh, some sense of pride to, to this community. So I would say that nowadays, Basically, five years later from, from start, the general opinion is quite positive and we got a lot of support from the local communities because we work directly with them. I feel very lucky to have spent that time talking to Pedro Prata about his extraordinary rewilding project in the Gredicoa Valley, and I for one certainly plan on visiting as soon as I possibly can. Pedro tells me that the best access point is the city of Porto, and then a railway journey along the beautiful Douro River into the Coa Valley, and if you want to learn more about the project, visit rewilding-portugal.com. I hope you've enjoyed this third series of six Rewilding the World episodes. I've seriously enjoyed making them. These are some amazing people I've been lucky enough to talk to. 
If you have enjoyed it, I'd be really grateful if you'd leave us a review. If you'd like the series on whatever platform you use, spread the word among your friends. And if you've got projects or people that you think I should know about, people you think I should speak to on the podcast, I'd be very, very grateful for any ideas you might have. So please do submit them and we'll do our best to include them. The music for this podcast series was produced by Jamie Tuthill and also by my brilliant, talented young cousin, Merle Powell-Smith, known as Marsa in music circles. Thank you both so much. I'm also incredibly grateful to the team at The Podcast Coach who've done everything to make this podcast happen. It's such a joy and a pleasure working with them. We'll be back with another series of Rewilding the World with me, Ben Goldsmith, early in the new year. So please do make sure that you're following us or subscribe so that you get notified when the first episode's out. 